Just a couple quick announcements before we head into the Word. Uh, again, I wanted to just make mention of the various events that we are still hosting, even though we are online. Uh, we have prayer tonight at 7.30, and you're welcome to join us. You, we have uh, youth events on Tuesday night and Friday night, and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday night, which covers more, goes more in-depth on the topic that we talk about on Sunday. And so uh, today we're going to be exploring why we should trust the Bible, how it's reliable, um, why we, you know, the good evidence, the early evidence that it has a trustworthy account of the life of Jesus, that it's God's word for us today. So we're going to talk more about that on Wednesday and really encourage you to come. We've had a, a few faithful, but we'd love, love for more to show up. So you're more than welcome to join us for that. Again, also just want to thank you, those of you that have continued to give to the church, excuse me, during this time. Uh, it's been really, really great seeing uh, people still willing to give. So bless you for your faithfulness. Thank you so much for uh, continuing to support the church, even though some of you, I'm sure, are going through financial difficulties. So bless you guys. Thank you for doing that. And uh, and just be encouraged. We're going through a, a different time. It's a difficult time for some, but God is on the throne. He is good. Uh, he's got us. And he is using this time to call us out of our sense of self-sufficiency and into his grace, to call us to realize how much we are not um, the authors of our own lives and that we need to consider uh, who we are and consider uh, Jesus' call for us to come into new life and to repent of our sin. And so I pray that during this time, God is using you and equipping you and filling you, giving you opportunities as he will to share the good news and to be a light to Dryden and to your neighbors and to your family and friends. Um, so with that said, let's press in deeper into the Lord and let's turn our hearts now uh, to God's word as Rob comes to read for us. Hello and welcome to the reading of the word of God. Um, the first uh, reading is from Luke 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And the second scripture is Second Peter, chapter one, verse sixteen to eighteen. Second Peter, chapter one, verses sixteen to eighteen. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we were told about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And the third scripture is in 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Bless the reading of God's word. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word and we discuss your word this morning, I pray that my words would be your words for your people. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask these things in your name. Amen. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's you and me, the servant of God, may be thoroughly equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the idea that God's word is life-giving to us, and it calls us out of our life of sin, and equips us, empowers us, sustains us, is a light to our path, and helps us to live the lives that God calls us to. As Christians, we believe the Bible is God's word, and we believe that the Gospels are the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. They're written in the first generation following his life and death, and we believe that they have been reliably communicated through the ages to us today. Luke Uh, says in in the very beginning of his gospel, he says this, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, uh, delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write, listen to this now, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. The apostles um, want to pass on with certainty the message of who Jesus is, what they experienced with him, and to pass that on as eyewitnesses uh, to the future generations. We're going to talk this morning about why we can trust the Bible and what the Bible is in our big question for today. The biblical authors believed they weren't just writing ideas, but that God was actually speaking through them. And as Christians, we believe the Bible is like a, like a love letter written by God, and it tells us the story of his love and redemption, and it all points and culminates and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that in and through Jesus, who's a real living person, God has dealt with the problem of evil and sin in our world, and he has provided the remedy and the hope that we long for, which is to cleanse us, to forgive us, and to reconcile us again to God through the cross. And so, yes, the Bible is, is instruction for living, but it's way more than that. It's way more than that. Reading, rather than reading it like a, like a manual, we discover over 40% of the Bible is actually narrative, and another 30% or so is poetry. 
And so when you're reading this, you're going, well, maybe I have a question about how I'm supposed to do this sort of thing. What do Christians believe? You start flipping through it. That's not how the Bible quite operates. Yes, there's areas where it will give specific instruction, but it also wants to tell the story of who God is and what he is doing to renew our world through Jesus Christ. And and as we read, we get swept up in it and realize this is the true story that also applies to me. And so this first video I want to share this morning highlights what the Bible is and how the Bible came to be. If this is new for you, I encourage you to pay attention. For some of us, um, we just kind of accept what the Bible is, but maybe we need to ask the question first, what is this thing and how did it come to be? And so I invite you to watch this first video with me. Let's watch together. The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling. And they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand-year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually, they were conquered by the Babylonians, who took them away into exile. Then, at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible. What's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the Law. That's Israel's five-book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. Now, there were other Jewish writings being produced during this Second Temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff. 
was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So that's the Old and New Testament. But what did the early Christians think of the other Second Temple literature? Well, different groups had different views about some of these books, but we know they read them and valued these texts because they passed them along with the Jewish scriptures. Okay, so we've got the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. We've got these other Second Temple period works. Then the writing of the apostles about Jesus. And that's a lot of literature, so what's in my Bible? So the Christian movement has taken different forms over 2,000 years. And from the beginning, all Christians recognized the Tanakh and the New Testament as scripture. And for centuries, much of the Second Temple literature was read as part of the biblical tradition. The Catholic Church eventually made it official and called some of the books from this collection the Deuterocanonical books. Some Orthodox churches used even more books from this Second Temple literature. And then in the 1500s, during the Reformation, Protestant Christians wanted to go back to the oldest writings of the prophets and apostles, so they accepted only the Old and New Testaments. Okay, I think I got it. But... How does a collection of books produced over a thousand years by all these different authors tell one unified story? Yeah, that's the question we'll address in our next video. Now, that's what the Bible is. And as Christians, we believe the Bible's God's authoritative, life-giving word. But not everyone does. There's complaints about the Bible. Sometimes people just want to ignore it. Uh, because after all, if you read the Bible and you do think it's authoritative, you discover pretty quickly that it challenges us and it convicts us. We, our broken ways of living are kind of brought to the forefront. We realize, oh my goodness, um, I need a savior. I am broken here. But it also offers us hope and life through a relationship with God. Sometimes, though, people will counter the Bible. They'll, they'll make some objections to it. Some will say, well, uh, this is just a book of legends. Or it's just, it's very old. What on earth would it have to say to me uh, in my modern context? Or some will say, well, it's, it's been unreliably communicated. How can you think this is exactly what, what Jesus really did, the historical Jesus? Uh, the church kind of made this stuff up three or four hundred years afterwards. So let's unpack some of those objections. Mark Middleberg in his book puts, puts the objection this way, one of the objections. He says, objection one that people raise is the Bible's very old and was written by gullible, illiterate people. Therefore, we can't trust it. The Bible's very old, written by gullible and illiterate people, so we can't trust it. Now, think about that for a second. Inherent in that statement is the assumption that something old just doesn't have value, or we've grown beyond it. And this assumes that new is simply better by virtue of being new. And old must therefore uh, be unworthy of my time or attention. But we all know that new doesn't necessarily mean better. We know this, right? We, what about the enduring power of classic literature, right? It's endured through time because it communicates communicate something true. It speaks to human existence and experience. It asks, who am I and why am I here? And what's wrong? And what's the remedy? 
Uh, or think of it this way. Have you ever had something that broke uh, after only a few uses? Something that's new that, that didn't last as long as it should? Sarah and I uh, come up against this all the time because I think things should last forever. And so if we get something and after a couple years, like it just kaputs on us, I'm really put out and Sarah's like, it's only meant to last so long anyway. Um, so I have a thing with things being make, being made kind of disposably. It just drives me crazy. And and some of you know this, right? You'll be like, man, that old dishwasher like just lasted forever and was awesome. And this newfangled one's like not really that great, right? Um, or maybe you've got something else around the house where you're like, man, that old one was awesome. We just we could never get rid of this, right? Maybe it's a bed or like an old sofa that's made out of like real wood or something, right? Um, but here's the thing, sometimes things of the past have a better quality than things made in the present. And so new, by virtue of newness, doesn't automatically mean better. And old doesn't simply mean unimportant or passe. Life's, life's way more nuanced than that, right? And so the Bible matters because it speaks directly to all of our deepest human questions about meaning, about truth, about existence and purpose. It, it talks about love and community and death and life. It remains the best-selling book of all time for a reason. And again, it's this collected library of history and letters and poetry and biography, etc., etc., etc. And the amazing thing is that it has one overarching narrative. It tells this story of a good and holy God who's created us to be in communion and partnership with him. It tells the story of how humanity has rebelled against God and how uh, continues to do that through history and how God himself to rescue his creation has entered into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And he, through his act of self-sacrificial love on the cross, has actually made the way for us to be free from our brokenness and evil and to come into a, night, a new life-giving relationship with him. That's the gospel, is, is repent and believe. We are dead in our sins, and we need to repent of our brokenness and evil and believe in Jesus. And the Bible says when we believe on him, we are saved. We come into new life. And so this message of the Bible is, is intended to speak to its audience, who it was written to, but also to the larger audience, those who would come to read it long after it's written. And so to simply assume that the Bible is somehow deficient, uh, maybe because the, it's old or the educators were, uh, or the, the writers were maybe uneducated, or maybe they're simpletons, or they were gullible, or they were illiterate, it's simply, it's really just kind of categorically false. I love how Mark Middleberg in his, in his book, um, The Questions Christians Hate to Be Asked, uh, says jokingly, he puts this, he says, oh yeah, they were simpletons, all right. That's why people of that age memorized huge portions of every conceivable kind of literature. Rabbis had formed schools to train young men in theology who would then pass on that learning verbatim to successive generations. And the ancients had detailed calendars that kept track of the movements of the planets and the changing of the seasons and the timing of upcoming solar and lunar eclipses. People navigated land and sea without detailed maps or GPS systems. Oh yeah, they were illiterate all right, and they were gullible and naive. While we in all our modern wisdom can't find our car keys or can't find the remote control or figure out what day of the week it is or remember how to get to where we're trying to go. The fact that the Bible was written in, in ancient times 
really has no bearing on whether or not it is actually true. And the idea that the book isn't worth our attention because maybe it's written by illiterate people is just a poor argument. These people were were brilliant in a lot of ways. And it doesn't, uh, you know, it it almost assumes the sort of elitist attitude. Well, we're better because we're new and we're modern, we're advanced. Um, So the the idea, the objection that the Bible's just old really just kind of falls apart. It has something to say to us today. Now, another objection is this, that the Gospels written about Jesus, on whom our faith hinges, they aren't accurate. That's an objection. So when it comes to Jesus, the Gospels make some really important historical assertions, right? That Jesus actually lived and walked and healed and taught people and he died and rose again. We believe that. So is this true or is this just something his followers made up later? Is the Bible kind of compiled to tell a certain message with an agenda to purport a certain religion for power's sake, as, as, as Dan Brown's character suggested in, in The Da Vinci Code? Um, so legends like of, of that sort typically arise around historical figures sort of centuries after their deaths. But what what does the early literary evidence around these initial events actually tell us? Think, so think of it this way. Say an event occurs, say we're talking about COVID-19, right? Everyone's talking about. Years later, we're studying this outbreak, right? And you're like, man, I'm going to go research about COVID-19. What was it really like? And so you go and you find resources about the events surrounding COVID-19. Hundreds of years later, right? You're trying to discern what's an authoritative uh, account of COVID-19. And so you've got two documents in front of you. You find a, a document that was written hundreds of years after COVID-19 by someone who wasn't there, but they're reflecting on it. They're talking about it. So you're like, oh, great. This is like 400 years later. This person, you know, uh, they're thinking about it. Brilliant. And then you find a document by someone who actually went through it and lived it, and they're writing just 50 years after the outbreak. So both have value, but the earlier one, the firsthand account, provides this amazing eyewitness details to the event. The one written closer to the event has an authority to tell us about the truthfulness of the event. This is exactly what we have in the Bible concerning Jesus. We have this mass of historical and literary evidence written by those who were first-hand witnesses to Jesus. And the fact that these come from eyewitnesses and were written very close to the events that they talk about actually points to authenticity, which is the topic of this next video from Dr. William Lane Craig on can we trust the Bible if it was written 2,000 years ago? Let's watch this one together. I often hear students say, well, you can't know anything that happened 2,000 years ago. And what they fail to understand is that the crucial gap is not the gap between the time of the evidence and today. The crucial gap is the gap between the evidence and the events described by those evidence, that evidence. If the gap between the events and the evidence for those events is short, then how long it has been since the evidence in those events to the present day is just irrelevant. Good evidence doesn't become bad evidence simply because of the lapse of time. And with regard to the New Testament, when we look at the evidence, what we discover is that these records of the life of Jesus were written down within the first generation after those events while the eyewitnesses were still alive with people who had first-hand contact 
with those who would accompany Jesus during his lifetime. So that we actually have better sources for the life of Jesus of Nazareth than we do for most of the major figures of antiquity. For example, take Alexander the Great, the great uh, Greek uh, conqueror. Our earliest biographies, earliest sources for Alexander the Great, come from Arian and Plutarch 400 years after Alexander's death. And yet, Greco-Roman historians still regard these uh, records as uh, fairly trustworthy accounts of the life of Alexander the Great. The fabulous legends about Alexander didn't arise until the centuries following those two authors. And contrast that to the New Testament, where we have uh, books and records that are written within the first generation after the events while the eyewitnesses are still alive. So I think that we have very good evidence for the life of Jesus of Nazareth, very trustworthy evidence, and how long it has been since that evidence till today is simply irrelevant to the reliability and trustworthiness of that evidence. So the next objection that we sometimes hear about the trustworthiness of the Bible is this. We may have these early texts of Jesus' followers, but how do we know they were writing something true and not just spinning a legend? How do we know they weren't just making this up? Well, there's a number of important tests that we can look at. And I like what Frank Turek says uh, on One Minute Apologist, and I'll put the link to that in uh, attached to our video. And he talks about the, the historical reliability of the Gospels in this way. And he talks about a series of E's. He says, we have early testimony that this was written very close to the events, as we talked about in, in Dr. Craig's video just recently. We talked about how there's eyewitness detail testimony, which is very, very important. We talk about um, there's actually embarrassing details that make the early church leaders look bad. And so it's probably not something you would invent if you were trying to start a movement. Uh, we have women being the brave ones at the crucifixion and the first witnesses to the resurrection. Um, in, in, in first century uh, Israel context, a woman's... Um, testimony isn't worth anything. It's considered um, kind of worthless. And so to have women be the ones there uh, to be at Jesus' uh, side at the crucifixion and to be the first ones to hear the resurrection doesn't look good on the men and some of the early Christian leaders. If you were going to include embarrassing details in a story you were making up, uh, it, it hinders your movement. But you may keep the embarrassing details if you care more about being true than making something up. The other thing we have is excruciating testimony. Um, these people died brutal deaths when they could have saved themselves if they just said, we're making it up. We also have expectant testimony that the Old Testament prophesies about a Messiah and Jesus fulfills these prophecies in an amazing way. We also have extra-biblical testimony. We have ten ancient non-Christian sources that are congruent with the life of Jesus. Think back again 
to our scriptures that Rob read for us. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. We're not just making something up, Peter's saying. We saw this. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter saying, We were there. This is something we encountered. And John says the same thing in 1 John 1, 1 to 4. He says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we've seen with our own eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest and we've seen it. We testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. So that you too, why do we proclaim this? Why do we, why do we talk about this Jesus? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Friends, the apostles wrote the gospels and wrote the letters and the Christian movement started not because they were devising some clever myth. They would gain nothing from doing so. Rather, they sought to write down what they had actually experienced. This one that they had seen, this one they had touched, this one they'd heard. Jesus crucified and risen again so that all who would hear this message and believe it and receive Christ as their savior would have true life. And remember, they died for this, right? In the early years, Christianity wasn't accepted. And so you could ask, well, oh, surely people, people might die believing a lie. But would they really let themselves be killed for something they knew wasn't true? That's the topic of this next video from Impact Ministries called Why Should I Believe the Bible? Let's watch this together. One test we can use to see if the authors are telling the truth is called the honesty test. It looks to see if the authors wrote any embarrassing material about themselves. The fact that they would write something embarrassing about themselves is significant because it means they were more concerned about recording truth than recording an awesome biography about them. If they wanted to lie about Jesus, it wouldn't make sense for them to make up embarrassing stories to portray who they were. If they wanted to lie, then why not make up a lie that makes them look good? Well, does the Bible record anything embarrassing? Yes, Jesus called Peter Satan. That's not a good name to be called, by the way. At the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells his disciples to pray. Jesus leaves and returns to find them all asleep. So he wakes them up, tells them to stay up and pray, but they fall asleep again. So why were they told to stay awake? Because Jesus was arrested right after that. Oh, and what happened when they were surrounded by soldiers ready to arrest Jesus? All his disciples book it. They ditched their best friend in a heartbeat. Then Peter denies Jesus three times, pretending he didn't know him. One time to a little girl. And then he cries his eyes out while the other disciples go hide somewhere. And to top that off, before all of this, the disciples were all debating on which of them were the greatest. 
in front of Jesus. Anyone detecting some embarrassing material? So, why is this embarrassing thing important again? Because all the disciples, except for John, died brutal and horrible deaths for their faith. Some were crucified, stoned, beheaded, thrown into ovens, hanged. And if all these disciples were lying about their experiences with Jesus, why would they die for a lie? All they had to do was renounce their faith. They would only have to say, okay, I was wrong, Jesus wasn't God, then their lives would be spared. Why would they all be willing to die? You know what their embarrassing stories tell me? That the authors weren't concerned with themselves, they were concerned with relaying truth. So now we come to another objection. Even if the Bible's written early on, even if the disciples aren't writing legends, how do we know that what's come to us is still good and true? What if, what if in copying these things on and passing them on through the years, it, the, the copies have been corrupted and, and now there's just, it's, it's full of contradictions? What do we do with this? Is the Bible full of contradictions, as people say? Well, I would say this, it's important to distinguish between differences and contradictions, okay? A difference refers to something that's described in a different way, but not in a way that is logically incongruent with other details, whereas a, a contradiction means two passages actually conflict. So here's an example. Um, Brian, our children's and youth pastor, uh, has a desk in our prayer room at the church, which also doubles as a meeting room, and a library, okay? Um, and for a time, we even had a little fireplace in there, so sometimes we'd call it the fireside room, not to be confusing. This place has four names, and it could all mean the same thing. Now, imagine someone is telling you their eyewitness account about where they saw Brian. They might say, hey, I saw Brian in the church library reading a book. Someone else might say, I saw Brian standing at his desk in his office. And another person might say, oh, I saw the youth pastor pacing and, and on the phone uh, in the meeting room this morning. They all said things differently, but these aren't contradictions. They can all be true and still hold together coherently and logically. Nothing's been said that actually contradicts someone else's testimony. Brian was in the room. It's called by multiple things. He was reading, perhaps phoning, at times sitting, at other times standing, maybe pacing. But the truthfulness of it, that Brian was in this place doing something, reading on his phone, etc., is what's true. So the details might be slightly different, but there's no inherent contradiction. Many of the so-called contradictions in the Bible are just like this. They're differences, though they're not actually logically incoherent. One gospel writer will say, there's an angel at the empty tomb. The next says, there's two angels. Does that mean the first one's wrong? No, you need one angel before you can have two angels, right? Another says, it's a man clothed like lightning. It's creating this word picture. It's meant to spark our imaginations. Does that contradict with the other two? Of course not. They're saying the same thing, but in different ways. The core message is unaltered. Angels are present, speaking to the women at the empty tomb. That's the important thing. And you can go through a variety of the cases of so-called contradictions and, and unpack them this way. Now, here's another thing to note when we come at these contradiction issues, is that we have a modern tendency towards accuracy in the details. This is something that often the ancient writers weren't obsessing over. I mean, have you ever noticed in the gospel, no one's describing what Jesus looks like, right? This is just not something they care about. They don't care how tall he was. They don't care what color his hair was, right? A modern novel would go into all sorts of, you know, face and 
details of the hair and the countryside and etc etc those are unimportant in some of these ancient texts in fact when they do draw attention to kind of physical details it's usually for a really good reason like to say so and so is left-handed and you're like okay that's worth noting right it's going to show up later in the story so the sense of, of modern accuracy is something we often put back on the text and expect it to fulfill our answers in certain ways when the bible biblical writers weren't interested in that it wasn't something that was as key to them as it might be for us in our in our age. Here's an example of a different sort of emphasis in details. In Joshua, there's this whole idea of them entering Canaan and to take out the people, right? God's calling them to uh, kind of as an act of judgment against the people's sin, you know, take them out and, and remove the Canaanites. And it gives the sense of sort of like absolute victory, right? There's no Canaanites left. And yet almost straight away in Judges, we discover this is not the case. There are Canaanites in the land. And now God's having to tell them, don't intermarry. Don't give yourself to the idolatry of the Canaanites, right? So if the Canaanites are left, does that mean saying Joshua was victorious is inaccurate? You have, on one hand, Joshua was victorious. On the other hand, uh, well, there's still Canaanites. How do these two fit together? Is it untrue? Well, no, it isn't. What they mean is he is successful in rooting out the culture. And sometimes when they say always or every, it's the sense of almost hyperbolic detail. Does it mean every last Canaanite was destroyed? No, and we know that to be true. And so the ancient writers often use this way of describing events. It's very different from our Western modern 21st century ears, and we need to be okay with that. We need to learn to read the Bible in its context and learn what sort of biases and presuppositions we bring to the table and then wrestle with the things we discover. There's things that sit with us weirdly when we're reading the Bible. That's good. We need to lean into those and, and dig deeper. What is, why is this here? What is God really saying? And so, the, again, the Bible's ancientness is not a hindrance in its ability to speak the truth. In fact, it's actually amazing how uh, truly reliable it is. These supposed um, myths or really falsehoods start to dissolve when we realize we're reading a variety of genres and we need to read accordingly. And these supposed contradictions are actually more often differences, not actual discrepancies. Our Bibles today are also, you've got to remember, they're based on very early ancient Greek and Hebrew texts, and the record of the evidence we have is better than any other ancient text in history. It's passed on with this incredible reliability, with little to no variation in the copies as scribes pass, pass it on. It's incredible how well the Bible's been preserved. And even in the few minor variations of differences we get between the texts, none of them uh, is regarding a major doctrine. No major doctrine hinges on a questionable or disputed variation in the text. And so God has preserved his word for us uh, in an amazing way. It's, it's trustworthy, it's faithful, and it's good, and it's life-giving. The last video I wanted to, to share with us this morning really highlights this last point of, of how the Bible was communicated on through the ages. So let's watch this last part together. Now another question comes up. How do we know the Bible isn't like the telephone game? How do we know if what we're reading is still what the authors wrote thousands of years ago? This telephone test allows us to see if the documents have reached us accurately. We look at what's called a time gap. A time gap is the gap of time from when the author wrote the original 
to the time when the first copy was written. You see, back then they would write letters to each other. You probably wouldn't survive back then since texting didn't exist. Anyways, people would handwrite and copy exactly the original documents. Documents written by Paul, Peter, John, etc. These handwritten documents, originals, and copies were called manuscripts. The smaller the time gap between an original and the copy, the less room for error. So, let's look at some documents outside the Bible. Pliny the Younger was a Roman historian, and the time gap from when he first wrote his manuscripts to the copies we have is 750 years. Caesar's time gap for his manuscripts is 1,000 years, and Plato's Tetralogies is 1,200 years. The time gap for the New Testament, only 50 years. That's right, 50 years. The copies we have of the New Testament were within 50 years of the life of Jesus. The first biography we have of Alexander the Great is 400 years after he lived, and no one questions his existence, yet we have four biographies of Jesus within 50 years of his life, and everyone has a problem with him. The evidence we have of Jesus easily outweighs all other ancient figures in history. If we don't trust in the records of Jesus, then we have to throw out everything else we know or think we know about ancient history. That means throwing out everything we know about Caesar, Plato, Alexander the Great, and all those other dead guys. <sighs> now let's look at how many manuscripts we have of the New Testament. Let's think this through. We want more manuscripts, right? The more manuscripts we have, the more evidence we have, and the better chance we have at getting back to the original. Let's look at Caesar first. All that we know about Caesar, who was a contemporary of Jesus, is all written on 10 manuscripts. Now let's look at Plato's Tetralogies. Everything written in seven manuscripts. All that we know about Tacitus, one of the greatest Roman historians, in 20 manuscripts. Now let's look at the number of New Testament manuscripts. Let's guess how many. You're right, 24,633 manuscripts and counting. Look at you, so smart. Now guess which historical document has the next most manuscripts and how many copies there are. It's the Iliad by Homer and has about mm, 643 manuscripts. It's a close second trailing the New Testament by only 24,000 notice my sarcasm. Everything we know about Caesar is in 10 manuscripts and no one questions what he said or what he did. No one questions Plato or Tacitus, but for some reason a ton of people have everything against the Bible, yet it overwhelmingly has the most evidence and manuscripts supporting it. So now that we've covered the honesty test and the telephone test, let's look at the corroboration test. This asks the question, do other historical materials confirm or deny the testimony of the Bible? So let's look at early writers outside the Bible that talked about Jesus. There are nine non-Christian sources that mention Jesus within 150 years of his death, plus another 33 Christian sources. Altogether, that's 42 other sources besides the Bible that speak about Jesus. Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus, has 10 sources that mention him within 150 years of his life. 
Jesus has four times as many historical references that speak of him. So, even if you took the Bible out of it, we can know from other sources that Jesus lived, that people believed he was the Savior, that they worshipped him as God, that he did miracles, and that he died by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, that he was buried and rose again three days and appeared to his disciples afterwards, that he ascended into heaven, and that he will one day come again. You see, here's the thing. Many people claim that the Bible is just a book. They believe it's some crazy religious thing only meant for people crazy enough to believe it. But that's not true. I mean, it is crazy, but it's not just a book. It's a letter. A love letter that God wrote to touch the hearts of people here so that they can know Him. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us. The Bible tells us that God loves us, and how do we know that? By looking at the cross of Jesus. We're sinners, deserving of death, but Jesus died anyway so we can spend an eternity with Him. We went through the honesty test, the telephone test, and the corroboration test. The Bible stood the tests, and God stands before us now in His Word. The real question is, will you hear Him? Do you read the Bible just to get through it, or are you letting God's teachings go through you? The Bible is more than just a book. It's God's Word, and He wants to tell you how much He loves you. Why in the world should you believe the Bible? Because it's reliable. It has evidence. It's been proven. It points to truth. And the truth is, God loves you. And he had to tell you some way. Folks, the Bible makes the claim that God created us, that he loves us. He's actually come into history in the person of Jesus Christ and that through him he has resolved the evil in our world by dying to its power, dying for our sins, rising again so we can receive him as our personal savior and have salvation and new life. When it comes to talking about the Bible, we've examined some of the objections that it's just old, that the, the evidence of the early writers concerning the gospels is poor. Maybe there's contradictions or it's been passed on poorly. But when we actually unpack those objections, we see that they start to fall apart. The Bible holds up amazingly well. And not only that, but we can trust in it as God's faithful word to us. Does it mean there's sometimes questions we have? Absolutely. Is there parts that are confusing? Yes. Are we reading an ancient text that's translated? Yes. But can we also trust in God's faithfulness to preserve this book for us? Yes. And so I want to encourage you. Yes, we can trust the Bible. It is good. It's God's word. We can study it. We can learn from it. We can meditate on it. It is a, a, a light into our feet, a lamp to our path. Or maybe that's flipped around. I don't remember. I should go over and look it up. Look, up at, look it up in a Bible, right? Um, so, so when the people say, when people ask, you know, why do you believe this book? Maybe you've got some, some things you can say regarding some of those objections. Here's the thing, again, when you're sharing this sort of stuff, is, again, to be, be gracious, to be gentle, to be slow to speak quick to listen. People may have issues underneath that they are dealing with about God, about Christianity, about faith, and you want to be able to meet them on those existential questions, on the, on the, meet them on the level of where they're at, and be able to love them well. 
And, and now you have maybe some good resources you can point people to when they wonder, why do we believe what's written in this book? Why do we say it's God's word? So I pray that encourages you today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your life-giving word. Lord, I pray in each of us who are believers today watching this, you would encourage in us a pattern of daily reading, of, of soaking in your word, not simply getting through it to get through it, but, but to rest in it and to let it speak to our hearts and our souls. Lord, we thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you that it is a source of life and strength, especially during this uh, difficult time. I pray you'd help us in families to take time to read the Bible together, to teach our kids well, to, to uh, wrestle faithfully with the questions that it raises. And Lord, thank you that this is an ongoing discussion. There may be things that were brought up here today that, that require further study for people. I pray they would do that with a sense of longing, Lord, for truth and to, and to follow you, to worship you well. We thank you, Lord, for, for those who through the centuries have worked to preserve your word for us and for the power of your spirit, keeping and guiding your word so we can have a true testimony of who you are, Jesus. We thank you for that today in your name. And Lord, we pray for our situation here in Canada, in Ontario, in Dryden, for our, our political leaders, our civic leaders. Lord, we lift them to you today. We pray you would bless and keep them, bless their families, give them wisdom, Lord, in the decisions they make. Jesus, we pray for those on our hearts today who are sick, those who are going through cancer treatments those who are awaiting procedures, those who are uh, trying to meet with doctors and other health professionals. Lord, we pray, have mercy upon them. Give them peace today. And Lord, we pray for our families and our church that you would bind us together, Lord, in you. We pray that you would keep us uh, focused and, and, and almost guided, Lord, by you and your spirit, that we wouldn't be pulled away by distractions during this time, but we would press into you. And Lord, um, we just come right now with the needs on our hearts. Friends, if there's issues on your heart today, um, worries you have, concerns you have, sin you've been battling over, let's just take a moment and, and give those, those things to the Lord. Lay them at his feet. Thanks, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you care about us, Lord. Lord, send us out to be witnesses of your resurrection life. Give us a boldness, Lord, to proclaim your gospel, to call people to repentance and to new life. May we show it with the love we have for, for each other, for you and for others. And with the words you taught us, let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
Well, friends, thank you again for joining us today. I pray that you learned something. I pray that something that maybe one of the video clips or something I shared, maybe the worship uh, spoke to your heart. I pray that you uh, grew in your relationship with Jesus and you feel encouraged in your walk with him. Maybe you're you're watching this, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. I pray that you would uh, feel something in your heart today that would say, I want to have a relationship with him. And I pray you would press into that and pursue that. We'd love to talk to you more about that. Get in touch with us if you're interested in in learning more about Jesus and who he is and, and the salvation he offers us, the freedom from the guilt and the shame that he offers us. Uh, friends, before we go, I'd like to close with the benediction. So children of God who are loved and forgiven by our Lord Jesus Christ, may you hold fast to the word of truth. May you be grounded in the the teaching of the apostles, the, the glorious word of life, the salvation that's been proclaimed through Jesus Christ. May you be grounded in this gospel and so able to proclaim God's goodness in your friends and with your family, in your workplace. May you be boldly equipped to stand on the solid ground of certainty of our faith, both filled with reason and filled with faith, And most of all, filled with the power and life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit, that you may go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen. Bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. encourage you to take part in our other activities through the week. Uh, Have an excellent, excellent uh, upcoming week. Uh, Said week three times in a row. Be blessed. We love you. Be in touch if you have questions or you're hurting. We'd love to connect with you. Um, Be blessed. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.